Hi, welcome back to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, which one's better, and frankly, what's that mean in the first place? Stick around, we'll tell you all about it. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. So, what is extrinsic and intrinsic motivation? Is one better than the other? We'll talk about that. Before we do, however, I want to talk about what it's for. Motivation, of course, is the thing that gets you off your duff and gets you doing things, right? Of course, it is also will apply to your clients. So whatever I'm saying to you now, you can also apply and have you be telling to your client in the future. So what are we going for here? We're going for productivity. We're going for productivity of our own and also getting our clients to be productive and accomplish what it is that they want to accomplish. Because after all, we are guides, right? We're guides. We're, we're, the, we're the Sherpa. We're helping them, pointing them in the right direction, but we're not doing it for them. That's a, it costs more, right? We probably could be consultants or whatever and get hired to actually do some things, but that's not what this is. We're coaches. So how do we get our clients to be doing things on a regular basis of a productive nature so they get to where they want to go? They do what they want to do. How do we get them to comply with our recommendations? That's an even interesting question. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was working in uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital all those years ago, it was a, it's a problem there. It's a problem in medicine. It's a problem, I'm sure you know about it. Maybe you're one of those people that, you know, you get a, a prescription, right? And you're supposed to take 10 pills over the next 10 days or whatever. And you're feeling better after three or four days. So screw it. I'm not going to take the rest of it, right? Not a good idea, by the way. You should always take the whole thing. There's reasons for it. But nevertheless, compliance. Um, Bob, you need to leave a few, lose a few pounds there. Uh, it's, uh, blood pressure will be better off, et cetera. So get to the gym every day. Quit eating so much meat. Quit smoking. All right, Bob, see you in a couple of weeks. Does Bob do that? No. <laughs> you know. But how do we get how do we get compliance? How do, how do doctors get compliance? How do we get compliance? And ultimately, make it so that the client doesn't need us, right? Or we don't need our coaches, you know, that we're doing it intrinsically. We have that intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic means that the motivation comes from within. You know, I'm motivated to do this because I want to, right? Extrinsic motivation is I want to do this because somebody told me I had to, you know, the doctor giving Bob directions as an example. And if you don't, I'm going to, you know, dock your pay. You know, so there's that extrinsic, you know, reward if you do it and punishment if you don't, right? That's the extrinsic motivation. Is one better than the other? 
I think we'll, we'll we'll see in just a few minutes because I think ultimately what we want to do, as I said, is to get the person so that they're operating functionally, effectively, without having to rely on a coach or plugging into their motivational system. It just becomes, in fact, a habit, right? Writers write. They get into the habit of writing every day. Runners run. They just run. That's what they do. They're runners. Right? It's, it's part of their identity. So they do it. It's habitual. That's good. That's what we want to do. We want to set it up so that we become habitually creating excellence, whatever that might be, whether it's you know music or writing or coaching, whatever it might be, that you do it kind of almost without thinking about it. You know, I remember a story my piano teacher told me. Um, and, and, uh, hmm. I want to tell you this story. Uh, there's there's questions in my mind whether this is factually accurate or not. But the story is this, that Pablo Casals, a great, wonderful musician, um, as he was advancing in age, had um, had arthritis. And and at some points uh, during throughout the day, you know, he'd have trouble like, like really moving his, his fingers, much less play the cello. So the, the story is, that he would get up every morning and and do this particular warm-up of a Bach um, prelude in C major. I could play it for you, but the piano's on the other side of the room. Um, and that as he played this piece, this, his fingers would warm up and that he would be able to you know, get back into being able to play. Um, it's probably true. You know, just because he was a cellist doesn't mean he couldn't play the piano also. And, um, you know, there's advantages to having your hands, you know, doing the same thing, you know, so a, a keyboard instrument has that thing, you basically right hand, left hand are doing the same basic function. Whereas on a cello, one string would be one hand be holding the, the neck, the frets and doing that and the other one be holding the bow, very different functions of the two hands. So it makes sense that Pablo Casals would do that. Anyway, my, my teacher got me to do it. Um, he said that you should do this every day. And, and I, and I, and I do, and I did. Um, I did for years. Don't do it so much anymore because I'm not actively practicing so much anymore. But I did for a long time, and it had wonderful effect. It really did. I didn't have any arthritis to deal with, but it certainly warmed me up in a really, really good way. It was a great sort of little set of warm-up exercises built around this one piece of music. So instead of playing just note by note by note, you play it as a chord, and then you play it in chord by, you know, sort of jumping up off the keyboard, if you will. So lots of different variations of the way you play those chords. Anyway, it got into the habit of doing that. You got into the habit of doing it. And so you become the, the pianist. You become the, the habitual doer of things without having to, you know, get into the motivation, whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic. So because I believe the goal is to create these habits of excellence, habits of, you know, productivity, that it doesn't really matter if it starts out extrinsic or intrinsic. So as an example, if you're intrinsically motivated to say, um, you know, build a website and you know, get clients into your funnel and doing all those things. If you're intrinsically motivated to do it, then you probably don't need a coach. 
probably just needs a little guidance of how to do that maybe and you know look at some youtube videos and figure it out and do it right or if you don't have that expertise then hire somebody you know if you're intrinsically motivated you're probably gonna you know find a way to do it i believe the expression is if you have a big enough why you will find a how if you have a big enough why you'll find a how probably true and most people who come to coaches have some intrinsic motivation they have enough to you know say i'm gonna hire this coach to help me right because i ain't doing it on my own so i need a need a coach so they're hiring somebody to give them extrinsic motivation basically they have enough intrinsic motivation to make the call you know pay the money and now it's like okay help you know give me the motivation so then our job as a as a coach is to use extrinsic motivation in order to create new habits so the the client again doesn't become long-term dependent on us we teach them new ways of thinking and behaving and responding right so the extrinsic motivation can help them create habits of excellence and productivity and then once their habits they don't need us anymore to you know crack the whip as it were so some of the extrinsic motivation ways i've worked in the past is um a very creative one that comes out of the, the world of ericksonian hypnosis remember once listening to a, a video of Erickson about Erickson. It was not him talking. It was uh, people talking about Erickson. And this woman who um, had really limited funds and didn't really have money to pay for his, his psychotherapy. Um, I don't know how she got to be there in the first place, but she was given therapy, uh, weekly sessions by Erickson at Erickson's house. Um, for free. And all he said is that, you know, as long as you come, you don't have to pay me. And if you miss a session, then you have to pay me. In fact, if you, if you miss any sessions, then you're going to have to pay me for everything that you've done so far. So uh, all the free, free sessions we've done for the past year, you know, become due on the day that you don't show up for your sessions. So that was a good extrinsic motivation so she showed up every week and got great benefit from it and it was a nice price tag you know it was free mm -hmm. pretty awesome i'd do it erickson and that same sort of idea of um this kind of creatively using extrinsic motivation also from an erickson point of view or ericksonian point of view um i've heard in a variety of guises but I, a variety of iterations but what I'm going to tell you about is um, I, I saw a video with Jeffrey Zag and a good friend of mine, Carol. Um, I won't mention her last name just in case she doesn't want it to be mentioned. But Jeffrey Zag is the um, president, I think, of the Ericksonian Foundation. He's certainly one of the um, movers and shakers of that organization. And he is also a fine therapist in his own right, of course. So he had done this therapy session with this woman who... Um, had survived uh, the Holocaust. She was in in Holland, I think, or no, no, Belgium, I believe, 
uh, in like 1942 when the Nazis came there and she had to escape with her family. She did fortunately escape and got to Spain and then I got on a boat to Argentina or something. I'm not sure exactly the whole route, but at any rate, she was having some issues later in life and, and attending this uh, Ericksonian conference. And she was chosen as a, as a uh, uh, demo subject for Jeffrey Zag to work with up on stage. And Jeffrey was trying to get her to do a certain thing. I've forgotten exactly what it was. But he was trying to get her to, you know, co to comply, to comply with the doctor's orders, to do something on a regular basis. And he said, um, and to motivate you, I don't know if you use these terms, but basically he said, to, to motivate you to do this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to um, take out your checkbook and write three checks uh, to at these amounts, $5, uh, $25, and $50 and make those checks out to the American Nazi party that actually exists. There was a, this was a number of years ago, but they've they're existing back there. And I think it was the seventies or eighties when this was filmed. Um, and he found the address for them. It was Washington DC, I think of all places. And so he, uh, he had her then get three envelopes and address the envelopes to the American Nazi party in Washington, D.C., put a stamp on them and um, put the one check in each of the three envelopes. And then she was supposed to carry those envelopes around with her in her handbag. And if she, I think it was, it was some some habitual thing that she was doing. He was trying to get her to not do it anymore. And I said, you, you get a few passes, you know, if you don't, if you if you fail and do this thing that you're supposed to quit doing, you know, two times, three times, okay, not, not a problem. But if you do it a fourth time, then you've got to take that check for $5 and put it in the nearest mailbox. So you're making a contribution in your name to this organization that uh, is people who were trying to kill all of your people. And then if you didn't, uh, you know, if you didn't comply, you know, five times, then you'd put the check for $25 into the mail. And if you didn't do it for six times, then you'd put the check for $50 in the mail. So um, interesting little procedure, isn't it? So this thing that she wanted to do was tied into this extrinsic motivation is like, if you don't, you make a contribution to this horrible, horrible club. And um, suffice to say, it worked. I wouldn't be telling you about it if it didn't. It worked. She she complied. And uh, maybe once or twice didn't do the thing or did do the thing she wasn't supposed to do. But she never got to make a contribution. Never got to that point. So these kinds of extrinsic motivations do this what we're looking for to do. We're looking to make habitual patterns so that they don't have to worry about extrinsic motivations anymore. They don't have to think about intrinsic motivations anymore. They just do it. You just do it. This is also the basis of my little EASE thing. If you're not familiar with the EASE, E-A-S-E, -E, that little acronym, go back and look at other further earlier podcasts, and we'll tell you all about that one too. It's also available, I think, as a, uh, as a download, a little book about it, a little ebook about it might be available at the website. Um, 
not sure about that, honestly, but you can check. Check over there at uh, ericksonian.com. That's one of my websites or essentialcoachingskills.com. Anyway, the idea of the E's, E-A-S-E, is that these four levels of doing help to create habits, help to create habits. When I was working for Tony Robbins back in the day, this was quite a few years ago, but I was a trainer for Tony. And, and in those days, before the lawyers got involved, um, I would get referrals from Tony's organization because um, people would call up Robbins Research International and say, hey, I want to have a session with Tony. I took his seminar, but I didn't quite master everything I wanted to do. And I, I'd want to have a private session. And they'd say, well, you know, that's uh, that's that's nice. But he doesn't do that. Um, so uh, here's some people that you could call. And I was on that list, you know, if I was in their neighborhood, New York City folks, kind of, basically. So I got a lot of calls from people that wanted to do sessions. And, and often their complaint was this, that they had taken this ses seminar from Tony Robbins. They'd done what he said to do, you know, take, put themselves in this firewalk state and take massive action, cool moss, cool moss, and go. And and they set their, their heights on this, set their sights on this big achievement. It's extraordinary achievement. And because, you know, they believed they could, they were surprised when they didn't. <laughs> and they failed to accomplish this extraordinary thing, this thing that they'd taken massive action in with good faith and high expectations and peak state and all those things. Like, what, what, what went wrong? And, um, you know, there's lots of things, obviously, that <laughs> went wrong that we could just spend a lot of time on strategies that weren't set out very properly. But one of the main things was, I thought, in my way of looking at it, is that they had only one choice. It was do all of this or fail. You know, shoot for the moon and arrive at the moon or not. Right? So that was, that was the choice. And honestly, it works great. That strategy works great for some things occasionally. And for most things... Most of the time, it doesn't really work that great. What you really need to do for most things, most of the time, I think, is to be consistent and to create consistent action, i.e. habitual action, things you do every day, things you do every day. Writers write every day. Runners run every day. Piano players practice every day. You know, that sort of thing, that sort of thing. So the ease idea is that, yeah, Shoot for that extraordinary level. That is the high E. It's like four steps. We've imagined four steps going up. The highest step is that extraordinary level. So you jump up to that extraordinary level. Um, but that's not the only choice. You've got three other steps you could land on. You could jump up not quite so far and, and get to the, you know, this level where you've stretched yourself, the stretch level, the S. You could just take a small jump and go to the A level, the acceptable level on the E's little staircase. Or you could just take a small step, go up to the easy level, the first step. So the easy level, something's easy for you to do. It's almost be ridiculous not to do that much at least. But all of them are going in the right direction, right? Each and every one of those steps, even if they're small, are saying to your unconscious mind, this is who I am. 
This is what I do. I run every day. I write every day. I am a writer. I am a runner. You know, I am a, a coach. I am a website maker. I'm whatever it is. You know, you do it regularly. Okay. So you're building habits by doing this. It's not so much about how much did I accomplish on the one particular thing, but it's did I do something at all because I want to build this, this, this belief in my brain that this is who I am. Because it is when it does that, when you have these consistent actions, they become habitual and it changes your belief about your identity. It's who I am. It's not just something that I do. I'm not a couch potato just struggling to get to the gym one day. No, I go to the gym every day. I'm a gym goer, right? It's what I do. I'm a gym goer. I'm an athlete. You know, you can choose different names, different names for the roles that you have. You know, find good words that make make you feel really good. That's actually a really good idea, by the way. Um, and nevertheless, the more that you do something, the more it becomes habitualized. There's a, a I don't know if it's a wives' tale or whatever, but it's 20, some people say 21 days in a row is what it takes for to do something every day for it to become habitualized in you as a habit. I don't know if that's true. I doubt that it's true. Certainly it might be true for some people. Some people might be, you do it five times and boom, it's in you, you know, other people might be a lot more than 21 days. Maybe it's 28 days or 36 days or 42 days or 143 days. I actually saw a study about it once that said, yeah, that's kind of average, 143. Nevertheless, the more that you do it, the more it gets ingrained to you as a habit. So whether it's 21 days or 43 days or 143 days, keep going. Keep going until you just don't have to push it anymore. It just happens. It just happens. I've done this for a whole variety of different activities that I do regularly. A number of years ago, I was um, went to a dentist appointment and only to discover that I'm not taking very good care of my teeth, apparently. And I haven't gone to the dentist very often either. So I had like 28 cavities or something like that. And, and, and um, Dennis said, well, you know, you don't have to floss all of your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. So uh, I started flossing. And at first it was just not fun. I was going to use a bad word there, but um, it just was not fun. And... Um, it took a while for me to sort of force myself to to do it, but the you know there is that extrinsic motivation. I don't. I just spent a ton of money having my teeth fixed, twenty eight cavities or whatever it was. It was a lot. Um, cost a fortune. It was not a comfortable operation. I did not want to do that again. So yeah, okay, I'll floss. Give that a go, you know. So I I got into the habit of doing it eventually, and now if it's if I get to the point where I, I'm going to bed at night and I've brushed my teeth, if I forget for some weird reason to floss, which is rare because kind of is habitual, you know, put down the toothbrush, reach for the floss. Um, if I forget for some reason, then I'm usually tossing and turning and say, okay, 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 let's get out of bed, go back to the bathroom, floss, and okay, now I can sleep. You know, the habits get built up in you. And so that's what we're looking to do. Extrinsic intrinsic yeah doesn't really matter as long as you're motivated to do it 
I once had a piano student, I think I might have told you the story. I once had a piano student who was very good when she practiced. She was very good when she practiced, but didn't always practice. Sometimes she did, sometimes she didn't. And um, one time I was asking her, I said, so hey, is there ever a situation where, you know, you got homework to do, but you didn't really do it. And then your mom says something to you about doing your homework and you, it motivates you to do your homework. She said, oh yeah. I said, okay, what's, what's that? What does she say? She says, she says, if you don't do your homework, I'm going to kill you. And um, this was a few years ago. So it was politically okay for me to do that, I hope. <laughs> At the end of the lesson, I took advantage of her motivation strategy. And I said, now I want you to practice five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day. You know, it was the ease level. Um, 45 minutes would be extraordinary. I'd love you to do that. And, you know, do 30 minutes if you can't do that. 20 minutes be okay. But, you know, five minutes for sure every day. And um, if you don't practice, I'm going to kill you. And I tried to, you know, use the same tonality that she demonstrated when she told me about her mother said. So um, she looked duly shocked when I did that, but it worked. She came back the next week, she'd practiced. And by the way, more than just the five minutes every day, she'd done like, you know, cause that's the thing, a body in motion tends to stay in motion, right? You know, the law of physics, law of body in motion tends to stay in motion, body at rest tends to stay at rest. But once you get the ball rolling, it tends to stay rolling. So get it going. That's the easy, level you know it gets the ball rolling it's the thing in motion so you know once a kid is sitting there and playing for five minutes if they're if they're doing that they usually get interested in it you know it's fun so they play for 10 minutes or they play for 12 minutes or whatever and pretty soon they're at that second level right they've already done to the second step they've gone to the acceptable level on the ease steps right so once they're there it's not a huge step to get to the stretch level once they're on the stretch level, it's not a huge step to get to the extraordinary level. So it, it happens. It happens. So she had done, you know, pretty much every day that the acceptable level and she was playing great. She was very talented. And so guess what? <laughs> every day, every lesson we had after that, at the end of the lesson, I said, okay, uh, if you don't practice this week, I'm going to kill you. And um, she's, she is now a concert artist and played Carnegie Hall. Okay, no, just made that part up. But she was, she got very good, really, truly. And to the point where she, I didn't have to say that anymore because she was just like, she just did it. It became such a, a self-rewarding system that she just liked to practice. She didn't mean me to influence her. She was great. But that's true. She was really great. She didn't need me at all to, to influence her to practice. I just uh, guided her. That's what we are. We're guides. So this is my little epistle on the... Uh, the intrinsic versus entrance in extrinsic motivation. My opinion is there's no judgment here. You do what they need to be done. If they need extrinsic motivation, then give it to them, you know, until they don't need you anymore. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope to see you again real soon. This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks. Thanks.